I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 12, Romans chapter 12. And you'll need a Bible to follow along as we look at a passage in that chapter. So these guys have some. Get their attention as they make their way back, and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked at Romans 12 for you. And you can keep that Bible. If you don't have one, we want you to have one. And that's our gift to you. So take that with you. Bring it back with you each week. Romans chapter 12. Thankfully, it's not a frequent occurrence. But on occasion, this has happened at our house. Kim will say something like, We have to leave at 5.45 if we're going to get there on time. To which I reply, get where on time? And then what follows is a dispute, a loving dispute, I might add, about whether or not I've been informed regarding our schedule for that evening. Her saying that she had indeed told me about it and me claiming that she hadn't. On those occasions, I envision a large DVD in heaven that has recorded all the transactions and interactions of our lives, and it's going to be played back on the last day. And as we're standing there watching the DVD, I'll have a list of all of these events where we've differed on the facts, and I'll take great joy as the truth is revealed on the big screen, and I'm able to say, see, you never told me that. Now, contrary to what some think and to what many of us might want, there really is not going to be a big screen in in heaven. So without some documentation, then, we just have to be resolved to leave it unresolved. I gave that illustration, though, to show that there are some words that assume prior knowledge on the part of the one who hears or reads them. Saying we need to get there on time assumes that we know where there is. Asking something like, do you think these will work for that? Assumes you know what these are and what that is. Some years ago, there was a book published with the title, The Nine. It's not a novel, and the title assumes that you know it's about a particular group of nine people, the Supreme Court. The Bible uses the word the in that way. Assuming a prior knowledge of the person or thing that it's identifying. For example, sometimes Jesus' first followers are simply referred to in the Bible as the twelve. Which assumes the the reader has some prior knowledge of who Jesus' first followers, the twelve apostles, are. In a famous passage in this book of the Bible, Romans chapter 1 says this. Although they knew... The God, literally, I have that highlighted for you. Although they knew the God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Now, many of you know that the latter part of your Bible, the New Testament, was originally written in Greek. And in the original Greek, the word the in that verse, which I've highlighted, is not translated in our English Bibles just because it sounds awkward, the God. But it's indeed there. And it points to the fact that all people were made in the image of God, that they were made to know God, and in fact do know who God is. And it's for this reason, because they know the God, that humanity has knowledge of the true and living God, that the Bible renders this verdict, that people are without excuse. 
Now, I've asked you to turn to Romans 12. And verse 9 of Romans 12 begins this way. The love. The love. Now, again, you don't see the word the before love in your Bible, but it's it's there in Greek. And it's important because it assumes something. It assumes there is to be love, and the following verses then are going to tell us what that love should look like. But the fact that there will be love is just assumed, so much so that it can simply be referred to as the love, the love. And the love, the love that we know that we're to show, is to look like what's said in the verses that we're going to consider today. Now, the reason that the passage can simply say the love and assume that we know that it's to be carried out and shown and demonstrated is because it's already been talked about earlier. It's been talked about earlier in chapter 5 of this very book, where the Bible says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And then just a few verses later, Famously, in verse 8 of chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And not only has this love that is assumed to be a part of the Christian life, so it can just be called the love, the love that you are to have. We assume you know that you are to have. That love was not only spoken about in chapter 5 of this book, but many years earlier, Jesus had spoken about it as well saying that love is the essence of God's law. Jesus said, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. And then he said, there is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus said on the night before he was crucified, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that quickly became the identifying mark of a Christian in the early days of the Christian church. Now, this is the ninth Sunday of the new year, and it's the ninth message of our series that we've titled Life in the Father's House. And in it, we're surveying what the Bible says about the church and what it is to be and what it is to do. And we've so far seen that the church is God's called out people. We've seen that the root in the Greek word that's translated church in your New Testament, the root of that word is called. But that raises the question, what are we called to be and what are we called to do? The first eight messages in this series have all begun in their titles with the call to something. The first two were the call to ministry and then the call to truth and the call to holiness and the call to mission and the call to love. And then for the last two weeks and now today for a third and for a couple of more weeks, we're going to look at we're looking at the call to relationship. We're going to continue to see the kind of quality relationships that are to be characteristic of the church. And there is a a close and indispensable connection between love and relationship. Because the truth is you can't demonstrate love apart from relationship. God is love in his very nature. And he has for all eternity been in relationship, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. And he calls us to relationship with himself and with others. 
Most of you know we were made in his image, the Bible tells us. That is made to reflect him back to him. And so that requires we be engaged in loving relationships as is God. That's what we were made for. But we don't do it because we all have a relational disease called sin. We don't do it as we were designed because of sin. Prior to our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinning against God, they were in perfect relational harmony with him and with each other. But immediately after they sinned, all of that changed for them and for their children, for us. They and we began to think of God and themselves and others in ways that distort our ability to love in our relationships. And we're all born with this relational disease But God begins to heal it when we're born again. And then we begin to look at God and ourselves and others in a radically different way. In the words of verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That transformation in how we think is what allows us to love and to relate again as we were designed to do. Last week, we saw from Romans 12 what's at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take a look at that. The top portion you see there is grayed out, and the blanks are filled in because we were able to cover that last week. And we saw from Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, that Christians think differently. That's in verse 3. Let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly about ourselves, verse 3 says. But then we also saw verses 4 through 8 tell us that Christians think differently. They, They think differently, but they think differently about themselves, both in light of the gospel and in light of our gifts, verses 4 through 8. And now today, after that, after we think properly about ourselves and what God has done for us in his grace in the gospel and in the gifts that he has given to us, I say in your outline today that Christians think differently about others. We think differently because we're being transformed in the renewing of our minds. We think differently about ourselves, but we also think differently about others. What we're going to see today, beginning in verse 9, is all about love. All that we do, including the use of our gifts that are we're told about in verses 4 through 8, is to be motivated by love. We see this very same pattern in other places in the Bible. Some of you are familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians in your Bible, the one right after Romans. And in verse, or excuse me, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, it's all about the varieties of, of gifts that a local body of believers will have and that they all come from the same spirit, and they're all to be used for the building up of of one another. But after chapter 12 and that listing of gifts, just like we have in verses 6 through 8 in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12 lists all of that same kind of teaching, elaborates on it even more. And then the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is what we call the love chapter. So 1 Corinthians 12 says things like this. The Spirit distributes gifts to each one just as he determines. And yet at the end of that chapter, it says, Yet I will show you the most excellent way. 
And what is the most excellent way? It goes into chapter 13 and a discussion then of love. And says, if I have the gift of prophecy, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And then in verse 4 of chapter 13 begins to explain the characteristics of love, that it's patient and that it's kind and so on. We have the very same thing now here. In verses 6 through 8 of Romans chapter 12, we've been told about the diversity of gifts, the fact that they come to us all from the same spirit for the purpose of building one another up. And then verse 9 turns to this issue of love. Look at verse 9 and following with me. Love, the love, must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at how God's love and the love that we're to have for one another fleshes out in our relationships. Father, thank you for this opportunity again on this Lord's Day to gather now in this sacred, solemn, blessed moment to open your word and to be instructed therein. Help us, Lord, to take this opportunity for the privilege that it is, the privilege to have your word in our hands, to be able to be instructed by it, the word of the eternal God. And I pray, Lord, that we will not be forgetful hearers, that we will take seriously what we read about what love requires of us in our relationships. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Christians think differently about others. And the first part of verse 9 says this love that we are to have as our thinking is transformed from that of the world is to be sincere. Love must be sincere, verse 9 says. I've already said that love has the article, the love, sincere, is literally what it says. It just says in Greek, the love, sincere. And so it doesn't tell us to love, but rather what it's telling us is to make sure that the love we're presumed to already have is to be of a particular type. It's to be sincere. And the word that's translated love is one that some of you are familiar with. It's agape, agape love. It's not unique, was not unique to Christians 2,000 years ago, but it was a rarely used word outside of the New Testament. And agape was used by Christians to signify God's love, the true nature of love, the love that we are to emulate in our relationship with him and with others. And this love, love that is true love, is to be sincere. Some translations say the love without hypocrisy. Because that's literally what the Greek word that's translated sincere is, without hypocrisy. Now that word hypocrisy, translated hypocrisy in some translations, the Greek word hypocrites was a term used in the theater of an actor and an actor who would have a mask on his face 
as he played a part. And that actor playing the part was called the hypocrite. And here it is saying that love is to have no mask on it. And that's why the NIV translators have said it's to be sincere. This love is to be characteristic of all who, according to Peter, have obeyed the truth so that you have the same thing, this sincere love for each other. Now, friends, why do we need to be warned about a fake, hypocritical kind of love? Well, the reason is, is because we can fall prey to substitutes for love, like just being nice. And let me ask you something. Did Jesus love at all times? The right answer to that would be yes. But was Jesus nice all the time? The answer to that would be no. But we live in a culture of niceness. And we, and we value, I value niceness too. I'm a really nice guy. I value the fact that I'm a nice guy. But people mistake love, niceness for, for love. One pastor has said it this way. We are not to be phony in our dealings with people. We are not to be polite, helpful, and apparently warm on the outside while despising them on the inside. This is important because a culture of niceness can develop within the church and, in fact, in any community that emphasizes traditional values. A veneer of pleasantness covers over a spirit of backbiting, gossip, and prejudice. There's an absence of tough love in which people would love each other enough to confront problems and sins in themselves and in their friends. That can very easily happen in the community of faith, the church. A phony kind of love that's really just polite and nice. But in fact, we talk differently about one another. We feel differently about one another. And this passage understands that and is saying our love must be without hypocrisy, not wearing any kind of a mask. And it has to be discerning love. The second part of verse 9 says this. Love must be sincere. And then it says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Real, sincere, genuine love will hate what is evil, abhor what is evil, and cling to what's good. Now, the word that's translated hate means to hate exceedingly. It's a very strong term. And the word for cling is also an equally strong term. It's used of intimate relationship in marriage. It refers to being bonded to what is good, like being bonded with glue. So what is necessary, why is it necessary for us to be told not only that our love needs to be without hypocrisy, it needs to be sincere, but that it should involve a hatred of evil and clinging to what is good. Why do we have to be told that? Well, the same pastor that I quoted earlier says, when we love someone, it often distorts our view of good and evil. Song lyrics capture the problem. They tell us things like, if loving you is wrong... I don't want to be right. Or it can't be wrong if it feels so right. In other words, if you love someone, your heart is bound up with his or her heart. And your beloved's distress becomes yours and his or her happiness becomes yours. And therein lies the temptation to give the loved one what creates emotional joy rather than what is best 
but which may create emotional sadness or anger. It is an extremely common problem, for example, in child rearing. Parents. Parents sometimes don't punish their children consistently because they can't bear their tears and anger. But the result of a childhood without discipline is almost always disaster. It may seem strange to tell someone, as this verse does, to love on the one hand and in the very same verse to hate. But that's what the Bible does. Because we cannot love rightly without hating rightly. This is closely linked to being genuine, sincere, without hypocrisy. Real love loves the beloved one enough to be tough. So author Rebecca Pippert writes in a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. I'm going to go on, but let me just stop here. I want you to think about your relationships. Are they genuine? Do they love, cling to what is good? Do they abhor, do they hate exceedingly what is evil? If so, then your relationships will not be centered on talk that's displeasing to God, for example. Tolerating that which God says should not be tolerated. God's law reveals the way in which our world and our souls were designed to be. To disobey God's law is always bad news for the person we love. Therefore, real love is concerned about truth. Any love that's afraid to confront the beloved is not really love, but it's a selfish desire, now hear this, to be loved. This kind of selfish love is afraid to do what's right toward God and toward others if it risks losing that person's affection. It makes an idol out of the one who is loved. It says, I'll do anything to keep him or her loving me. And friends, that's not loving the person. It's loving the love that you get from the person. In other words, it's loving yourself more than that person. So any so-called love that cuts corners morally or fails to confront is not really love at all. True love, on the other hand, is willing to confront even to lose the one that we love in the short term if there's a chance of helping him or her for what's best. Christians think differently about others. Who are, and I say in your outline, others who are within the family of God. Others who are within the family of God. This passage now, from verses 10 down to verse 16, it just has a number of statements, a whole bunch of them, that are hard to pull together. In fact, it would be very tempting to just list them one after another, and the Bible says do this, and the Bible says do that, and so on. I've tried in the outline to categorize what's said under four headings. Seeing that the love that we are to demonstrate within the family of God as a many splendored thing. And it looks like these four things that I have in your outline. The first is this, that we are committed to one another. We're committed to one another. Now, why do I say that? Because... This passage tells us to be devoted to one another in love. Be devoted to one another in love. Now, you have one another here, and then we're going to see one another again 
in the next sentence, and then down in verse 16, you have one another yet again. And about 40 times in your New Testament, the Bible uses this Greek word, alelon, that's translated one another. So it's clearly a very important idea, our reciprocal relationships with each other. And I say that because come April, when we resume our Sunday evening home groups, our community groups, we're going to take several weeks not to talk about what's preached on the Sunday before. That's what we normally do. Starting in April, we're going to take several weeks to go through a number of the one another's in the New Testament. And we're going to be discussing the application of those one another's to each of us. So I encourage you to be there for community group uh, starting the first Sunday in April. We meet tonight and then we don't meet at all throughout March. But then in April, we'll start that. And if you're not part of a community group, I encourage you to join one. Let the folks at the information center know you'd like to do that. When it says be devoted to one another in love... The word that's translated love is literally brotherly or sisterly love for one another. And then devoted has the same love prefix to it. And so it's being uh, devoted to one another, lovingly devoted to one another in brotherly or, and sisterly love. And both of those terms taken together refer to family relationships being applied to Christians because the early church saw its members as extended family, as we are to see, to see each other. That's why the motto for our church is that we are the family of God, built on the word of God to the glory of God. And in a family, think about it, friends, when a family member is different or when a family member messes up, we say something like, but he's still my brother. But she's still my daughter. And that attitude toward one another as Christians will keep us from writing one another off so that we can do the other things that are commanded in these verses. But if we're not devoted to one another, then we'll write each other off and then we'll have no opportunity to fulfill these other commands. Christians think differently. They think differently about others, including those within the family of God. We're committed to one another. And I say secondly... We defer to one another. We defer to one another. Verse 10 says, honor one another above yourselves. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, virtually the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. In humility, value others above yourselves. This word that's translated honor means literally to go before. And some have taken it, and it can rightly be taken as A challenge for us to outdo each other in complimenting one another and putting others before ourselves. So almost like we're competing with one another to put the other person first. In the church, you remember the old cartoon, uh, was it Chipmunks? They're Chippendale. And they're saying, no, after you. No, really, after you. To do this, though, we have to treat people as valuable and precious, honor them. We need to remember that every person is made in the image of God. And in this political season, friends, I remind you, that means Republicans and Democrats are made in the image of God. Republicans and Democrats in the church, believe it or not, are made in the image of God. In our relationships, this means practically that we'll seek out to find what matters to the other person, be attentive to what they need, listen to what they say. 
We'll concentrate more on the needs of others than we do on our own. And verse 16 says basically the same thing, that real love is centered not on ourselves. Verse 16 says, do not be proud. And then at the end of verse 16, do not be conceited. This means in that verse that we will, in the middle of it, be willing to associate with people of low position. So whoever is not in your circle, because you're not conceited, because you're not proud, because you honor others, because they are made in the image of God and they are part of the family of God, whether they're in your natural crowd or not, you'll be happy to seek them out and to welcome them in. So Christians think differently about those who are within the family of God. We're committed to one another. We defer to one another. And I say thirdly in your outline, we're patient with one another, patient with one another. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, as you look at those two verses, it looks like there are six commands. Don't be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Serve the Lord. Joyful in hope. Patient. It looks like there are six. But in fact, there are really only four. In verse 11, do not lack in zeal is the only command. The other two are the ways in which you don't lack in zeal. You keep your spiritual fervor and you remember that you're serving the Lord. That will keep you from lacking in your zeal. And then you have three in verse 12. So there's a total of four. And these look like they're all directed at first at our relationship with God. But remember, this is all in the context of our relationships with other people. So it's really telling us, in the words of one commentator, to use all our spiritual resources not to give up on our Christian brothers and sisters. We must keep our hope. So when it says joyful in hope in verse 12. That is rejoicing in, in hope. In the hope and the godly expectation that something will change. In my loving efforts to this person to whom I am devoted. We must keep our hope and be patient in all the troubles that we meet. And address all of this, verse 12, with prayer. So how does that relate to Christian fellowship? Well, perhaps the Bible just means that we're to be models to our brothers and sisters when we go through difficulties. But it may be that we're to meet troubles of Christian relationships, indeed, with patience and prayer. And, of course, that's necessary because to be deeply involved in people's lives is, in fact, hard work. C.S. Lewis once pointed out, the only way to be sure not to have your heart broken is to never give it to anyone. And that's what some people do then. Just avoid getting too close so you can never get hurt. Since we all give our hearts, though, to people, or we all should, then our zeal, verse 11, and our hope can, in fact, and often do diminish. And so we're to remember our hope in the fact that Christ has triumphed and what Christ has done through us and what Christ can do through the other person. And to meet that challenge in that relationship with prayer. So Christians think differently. They think differently about others. They think differently about others within the family of God. We're committed to each other, defer to one another, patient with each other. And then I say, fourthly in your outline, 
we act on behalf of one another. We act on behalf of one another. Verse 13 says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 13 says a couple of things, one of which is to practice hospitality. This need to be hospitable is found in a number of places in Scripture. One of them is in the qualifications for leadership in the church. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, where it gives the list of qualifications for elders, that they are to be hospitable. 1 Timothy 3, the pastor is to be hospitable. But then God's people in general, not just the leaders, but we as God's people as a whole are told in 1 Peter chapter 4, offer hospitality to one another. Now, why was this necessary, particularly in the New Testament church? Well, it's because you didn't have hotels like we have all over the place where if you travel from one place to another, that you could find a place to stay. The places to stay, particularly for traveling missionaries and Christians, was with other Christians. And so people are implored to open their homes to help in the work that these missionaries are are carrying out. So that's, that's one reason, one very important reason in the New Testament. But this idea of being hospitable, and the word that's translated hospitable, goes all the way back uh, to your, your Old Testament. In the law, the Bible says this, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. It goes on to say, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, what does this foreigner thing have to do with hospitality? Well, what it has to do is this. The word that's translated, practice hospitality, means literally show love for the stranger. Show love for the foreigner. And you find this idea going all the way back into the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. So Tim Keller says this, real love combines feeling with action. On the one hand, we're called to empathize with others. In a powerful verse, we are called to, in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And in verse 13, it essentially says, put your money where your mouth is. He says, share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. We're to share our homes, our money and our things with those who need them. This needs to be seen in the context of the rest of these commands, which press us to be truthful and devoted despite our feelings. So we see that real love is not sentimentality, but the activity of meeting needs. Now, how can we be commanded in this passage to rejoice and mourn when these are emotions? Well, actually, we're being commanded to do something that is within our power. Christians are called to a discipline. Yes, a very hard one, but a discipline in which we stop and seek to understand the inner world of another person. And that can be done by connecting it with our own joys and our own sorrows. It's hard and unpleasant to remember our own experiences of grief. And it's worked just as hard, though different, to enter into the joy of someone who's not you. 
If your friend gets a good thing which you don't have, it's difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. And then on the other hand, we're told to practice love. The Bible is reminding us that love is primarily action. And part of that action is to love the stranger, the person that you don't know who's different from you. Now, I just want to stop and take a minute here, maybe a couple of minutes. And this is probably foolish on my part because I'll probably get injured for saying it. But you all know we have a huge immigration debate going on politically. Can I just say to you, Christian friend, to make sure that the position that you hold and the words that you speak are consistent with what the Bible teaches about loving people who are strange to you, about welcoming people who are different than you. Now, no one cares what my own personal position is on this, but let me give it to you anyway. I think it's perfectly appropriate and wise to have an orderly system of immigration. But the truth is there are people who live in places that for the sake of their families and the good of their families have come to a better place. And there are some of those people who have been here for a very long time. And did you know that some of your brothers and sisters in this very room have friends and relatives who have come from south of the border in search of a better place? I've spoken with brothers and sisters who who are from Mexico, have friends from Mexico. And they feel this very differently than some of us who know nothing about that. So as we stake out our policy positions, let us stake them out as Christians. Let us stake them out with the tone of a Christian, with the love of a Christian. Yes, all the while seeking policies that are orderly and wise. And at the same time, loving the foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Christians think differently. They think differently than the world. And friends, that applies to then how we vote. That applies to those for whom we vote. And if we get all jazzed up about the jingoistic guys that talk smack, not thinking of anybody in particular. Yes, I am. But I'm going to vote for that guy because that guy's tough. If we're going to be tough, let's be tough in a biblical way. Christians think differently. They think differently about those within the family of God. And, I say in your outline, about those outside the family of God. Verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the principle in these five verses is really found in the first and last verses, 17 and 21. Do not repay anyone. Do not be overcome with evil. 
And the word in verse 21 that's translated overcome is a military term. And it's saying if you engage in repaying, if you engage in vengeance, then you've lost the battle. One has said the only way to defeat the evil is to forgive and love the person. Another way to put it is that when we identify evil too closely with the evildoer, then we believe we need to destroy the evildoer in order to destroy evil. And so it seems good to do evil. And then we unwittingly fall prey to the prohibitions that are given in this passage. We have to, if we're going to fulfill this, separate the evil from the one who does it. We have a verse or a song that we sing sometimes that has a lyric in it that says, Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. Love the captive soul. But the one we rage against is the captor, the evil one, Satan, the devil. And if you do this, the passage says, you heap coals on his head. That is, he or she may come to repentance. The hostile person, the person who's hostile toward you, may be led to shame, to alarm and remorse, and so be rebuked and be rebuked by your kind life toward them. Now, one has suggested then three practical things that these five verses mean. One is this. Do not avoid the person who is hostile to you outside the family of God. Verse 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. When people have wronged you, it's common simply to avoid them. You may say, I'm not paying them back. I just don't want to see them. But your avoidance could well be a form of payback. To avoid them does not overcome the evil Unless, I have to throw this in, unless you're in danger. If someone who is hostile to you has placed you in physical danger, avoid them. But other than that, don't avoid them. And here's another practical way to carry this out. Express loving words and actions. Express loving words and actions. Verse 20 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. This means simply that we're to speak and act courteously and kindly to those even who are hostile to us. Now, we've got to be careful here. Sometimes we may do kind things to hostile people simply as a way to shame them or sort of rub their nose in it. It's not the motive in view here. We thoughtfully find ways to wish them well, do helpful things, and speak respectfully to them. Forgive and forego any vengeance, repayment. Do not take revenge, verse 19 says. And then, thirdly, do love as you repent of not being loving. Say that again. Do love as all the while you repent of not being loving. You see, this is a person who's hostile to me. How am I going to love this person? And the suggestion is do the actions of love. And all the while you're doing the actions of love, repent of the fact that you don't feel loving toward this person. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, the gospel allows you to do that because you see that in the gospel, love is not just for the lovely, but it's for the unlovely, right? That's how you have a relationship with God. That's how I have a relationship with God. God loves us, the unlovely and the unlikable. But a person who does not understand the gospel can't do this. A person who is just generally moral and nice can't do this. They have to choose between two erroneous alternatives. Either phony love, 
That's niceness to people you don't like. Or sporadic love, kindness only toward the people you do like. But if you show love as you repent, then your heart is softened even as you serve. Your service is sincere toward God in that moment. And it becomes more sincere toward the person as you go along. So what then is our take-home truth after these two weeks in Romans chapter 12? Transformed thinking results in transformed relationships. Transformed thinking results in transformed relationships. Now, I said this can't be done apart from the gospel. Friends, these are all these passages that we've been going through the last few weeks. They're all good measures of where each of us are spiritually and whether or not we've embraced the gospel and whether or not we have a relationship with God ourselves. If you don't, you can't do this. Someone outside the gospel can't do this. And so the very first step for you to be, have any hope of doing any of what's in Romans chapter 12 is for you to have embraced the gospel and have a relationship with God as a result of who Christ is and what he's done. And so we're going to pray in just a moment. But there are four things that you need to do and you can do them from your seat right now. You need to realize that you are a sinner. Realize that you have this distorted view of God, of others, of yourself, and it comes out in your relationships. Realize that, but recognize that Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He lived the perfect life that you were made to live. He died the death that you deserve on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. And you repent of your sin. You say, Lord, I see the way I'm going. I see the way you've told me to go. I want to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. When we do, from your heart to God, in your own words, you acknowledge, Lord, I have sinned. I see that sin in my relationships. I see it in a number of areas of my life. But I believe Jesus did what I couldn't. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he paid for it. And I ask you to forgive me. And I'm going to give my life to you and follow you. And the Lord says, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this sacred time to look into your word and to see what you say about the evidence that we know you. Romans chapter 12, it's in view of your manifold mercies to us, given to us in the gospel, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, that's then to show itself in transformed thinking about ourselves, about what you have given us in our gifts, and then in how we love other people, both inside and outside the family of God. So, Lord, may this be a measure for me. May this be a measure for us as to whether or not we know you. And if we know you, whether or not we are living consistent with what we know about you. I pray that as we are confronted with these truths, often convicting truths, that we will repair to what your word tells us to do, to confess our sin, and that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that there are brothers and sisters here that are doing that now as they think about their love for those in the family and whether or not they love them or they simply love being loved by them. Whether they're willing to engage in tough love, whether they're willing to confront for the good of others, say the hard thing, 
not participate in sin because we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And Lord, I pray particularly for any who are in this room who came here without a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to move upon their hearts, to cause them to see that they are outside your family, but that you invite them in to be adopted adopted as we have been because of Jesus. And then, Lord, begin your work in them as you are doing your work in us to conform us to the image of Jesus. And we will give you the praise and the honor. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.